All right. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Not our service, that's at 1030. This is a class where we equip you theologically beforehand. Let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you what we are doing today. Almighty God, we thank you that you love your church and that the gates of Hades have not prevailed against it, that though there are times we are more or less pure, your love for us is unchanging. Though our purity is changing, your love for us does not change. So we thank you for this time. We pray that you'd bless it, that it wouldn't just be a weird, merely academic exercise, but rather we would uh, see your faithfulness throughout church history and that we would learn how to deal with issues today by looking to those in the past, by seeing how uh, the church has already weathered these storms. So we love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, today we're going to be talking about Christianity going from being persecuted and illegal to about the most dominant cultural force for the next, I don't know, 1,700 years. And so we're going to be talking about the conversion of Rome. All the lessons that we've done before this, the previous two lessons, we have talked about Christianity in the early church and how they're persecuted and they're meeting in homes and they're getting murdered and they're getting eaten by wild beasts and the Colosseum and all this crazy stuff. And then last week, uh, Jared had talked about this need for uh, martyrs and apologists and people to defend the faith because Christianity is persecuted. Today, we're going to go from Christianity being persecuted and illegal to becoming where paganism eventually becomes illegal within the span of just a few decades. And so we're going to be talking about the conversion of Rome today, and we're going to be talking about the beginning of what is called Christendom. If you've ever heard the term Christendom, what is Christendom? It is where a culture is Christianized. It is typically where there is a union of church and state and that the predominant cultural influence is Christianity. If you're born in Christendom and you are not born a Muslim or born a Jew, you by default are a Christian according to this idea. So it's where Christianity is the predominant cultural influence. That is the idea of Christendom. Now, one comment that I think is important. Throughout church history, as we teach these lessons, we will call people saint something. Saint Augustine or Saint Thomas or whatever. Let me explain what we do and don't mean by that. We don't mean to buy into the Roman Catholic view of saints. The Bible's very clear that if you're a Christian, you're a saint. The reason that we will sometimes use the word saint is one, it's an official title throughout history. So if I'm meeting with a rabbi, I might not think that guy's a rabbi. In fact, if he doesn't believe in Jesus, then he's a false teacher. But we still use the term rabbi because someone else gave him that term. That's why we use the term saint. Additionally, it adds clarity to what we're saying. So if I quote from St. Anthony, and I don't say the word saint, and I just give you a quote, and it says, Tony. You have no idea who that is. At least by using the word saint, you realize, okay, it's a major church player. Or if I quote from St. Maximus, I don't just give you a long quote and say, Max. That's unclear. So it helps add clarity to what we're saying. But we're not agreeing that these guys are actually saints in the Roman Catholic sense. We're just using a common colloquialism. So keep that in mind uh, as we go throughout church history. Let's talk about Constantine. You know who he is. I know who he is. There's that Keanu Reeves movie that's probably all about him where he fights the demons or whatever with a crossbow. Constantine. He reigned from 306 to 337. And he was a co-emperor with a guy named Licinius between 311 and 324. At this time in the Roman Empire, you actually have kind of like primary emperors and junior emperors. And so he is a co-emperor at this point with Licinius, uh, although it is Constantine who, if you will, wears the pants in that relationship. He was the illegitimate son of a Roman military leader, Constantius Chlorus, and a Christian freedwoman named Helena. And even before his conversion, Constantine actually thought that Christianity could be useful politically. It could be something to preserve the arts. 
It could be something to help unite his empire. So even before he's a Christian, he's saying, this weird Christian movement might have some benefit in uniting my fracturing Roman empire. And so uh, that is even before he becomes a Christian. He founded one of the most important cities in history and named it after himself, Constantinople. In the West, throughout church history, the most important city will be what? Rome. Absolutely, Rome. In the East, it will be Constantinople, okay? Used to be called Byzantium. Today it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. So it changed to Istanbul after it was conquered by the Muslims. Same location though, Byzantium. Constantinople and Istanbul. Constantine will name it after himself because of his great humility, Constantinople. Now, how does Christianity go from being illegal, persecuted, where you'd be killed for your faith, to becoming a legal religion? Here is how the story goes, okay? Here's how the story goes. Constantine in 312, okay, notice that date, 312, it'll be important because 313 is gonna come after that and that's important. In 312, Constantine is overwhelmed fighting a battle near the Tiber River at a place called the Milvian Bridge. He's fighting against a guy named Maxentius. So you have Constantine fighting a guy named Maxentius, okay? And Constantine is losing the battle. He might lose, okay? But what happens is he sees a vision. He sees a vision in the heavens. The heavens open up and he sees a Christian symbol and he sees these Latin words, in hoc signo winkis, in this sign conquer. So he thinks, wait a second, I'm losing this battle. I see something in the heavens that says, in this sign conquer, and it's a Christian symbol. And so what he does is he has his soldiers paint a Cairo. Let me explain this. Let's, do, let's, let's use the whiteboard. We haven't used the whiteboard very much in church history because you don't want us like drawing pictures of Martin Luther or whatever. So let's write this out here. Okay, Christos, this is the name Christos in Greek, okay, this is where we have the word Christ, anointed one. These first two letters are called a key, if you're a a Greek scholar, or if you went to a sorority or something, a chi, a chi and a rho, this isn't a p, a p in Greek is what we think of as pi, 3.14, that symbol. This is a chi rho, so it's the first part of the word Christos. This is what Constantine has the soldiers paint on their shields and on their banners, okay? By the way, fun fact, whenever you see Xmas or Exianity, that's not somebody taking the Christ out of Christmas. They're using the first letter of Christ to say a shorthand for Christ, Christmas, Xmas, whatever it might be. So Constantine has his soldiers paint this Cairo on their shields and on their banners, and what do you think happens? Do you think he loses or do you think he wins that battle? Oh, he wins. Why are we talking about him if he loses? That would be the end of this lecture. There was a guy named Constantine. He thought God told him to conquer. Obviously, God didn't because he got destroyed, and here we all are as pagans, right? Okay, so he wins the battle and therefore decides to be favorable to Christianity, okay? Now, there is a lot of debate on whether or not he really cared about Christianity or he was using it more as a political tool, but we'll talk about that in a second. Because of this victory, because the Christian God gave Constantine victory, at least in his mind. Whether all these things happened are kind of irrelevant because Constantine thought that they happened. Because of that, in 313, this is an important date. We don't give you a ton of dates, but this is an important one. In 313, he passed what is called the Edict of Toleration. That is the first time in church history where Christianity becomes a religio licita, a legal religion. So you can now practice Christianity. It's now an officially protected religion of the Roman Empire. It has gone from where you would kill Christians 
and you would tie them to the wheels of chariots to destroy them, to now a major religion and a legal religion within the Roman Empire basically overnight. The Edict of Toleration in 313. What did that allow? One, churches were given their property back and subsidized by the state. Clergy were exempted from public service. And Sunday was declared an official day of rest and worship, which was really convenient because there was another cult going on that worshiped on this day, and it was called the Cult of the Invincible Son. Sol Invictus, the Son Invincible, the Son Unconquered. And guess what they worship? What day they worshiped on? Sunday. That's where we get it. That's where we get it. Thor's Day, is that named after Thor? Sunday is named after the Unconquerable Son, this common cult in, uh, in the Roman Empire. And so it was very convenient that uh, that was a day this cult was already meeting, and Christians were like, well, we already were meeting on that day anyway, not because the S-U-N, but because of the S-O-N. They didn't say that, they didn't speak English. But you get it, okay? They were already meeting on that day. In 380 and 381, Theodosius I made Christianity the official religion of the empire, And by 392, all pagan worship, private and public, was forbidden. You see how fast this this change happened. The other lessons we've been doing in church history, we're all cowering, we're hiding in the catacombs, we're hiding in people's homes. The Romans, they are there to kill us. And now we're like, we'll kill you if you're a pagan, okay? So it's shifted. There's a big shift going on at this time in church history. Where do we get the term pagan, by the way? Paganism. The word in Latin, paganus, means hillbilly. It means redneck. It means like bumpkin. The reason that paganism is called that is because of this. As Christianity begins to flourish, it becomes a major cultural force. All of a sudden, you're not just attracting the women and the slaves and the outcasts or whatever it is like in the early church. You're getting the cultural elites. You're getting the philosophers and the people with money and the people with political pomp and these kind of things. And so Christianity starts thriving Who is it that is still worshiping the old Roman gods? The people out in the country. The people still clapping their hands down by the river. The people still, you know, worshiping trees and stuff. And so they get this derogatory term, bumpkin, rustic, hillbilly. The people that live out in the sticks and worship fairies and such, they get called pagans. That's where the term paganism comes from. And it's Constantine who called the famous Council of Nicaea in 325. We'll talk about that. We've got a whole lesson on the Council of Nicaea. It's very important, but it's under Constantine's reign that that council gets called. Now, we have a picture there of Constantine on the first page. Look at those big old eyes. I mean, he really does seem to have also a chiseled jaw, if you get it. Um, There's also a picture here I've included of the battle at the Milvian Bridge. That is not at all what it would have looked like. That comes from the Middle Ages, but it's a famous painting of it, and you see there the angels up in heaven, and you see uh, the chaos, and that supposedly is where Constantine sees this, uh, this vision, sees this, uh, this image. Was Constantine really a Christian? So historically, in a sense, it doesn't matter. He made Christianity legal, and that would change the course of history forever, especially in Europe. Okay, especially in lands that have been conquered by the Roman Empire. But it's an interesting question to ask whether or not Constantine was truly converted. Did he really love Jesus? Did he trust him for salvation? Did he believe his sins had been paid for on the cross? Or was this more of a cultural thing? Well, the Eastern Orthodox Church thinks that Constantine was definitely converted because to him, he's not just Constantine, he is Saint Constantine the Great. Okay, so he's a saint in Eastern Orthodoxy. 
I have many, many doubts on whether or not he's a Christian. Let me just give you some facts about his life post-conversion, and then we'll take a vote, okay? First of all, he delayed baptism until his deathbed, okay? Let me tell you why. There was this idea in the early church that baptism would only wash away the sins that you had done up until the point of baptism, okay? So obviously, you want to wait as long as you can to cover up all those spring breaks, right? Or whatever it might be. So we don't hold that in Protestantism. We hold that when God forgives you, you're forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. You mean I'm even forgiven for my future sins? You have to be. When Jesus dies for you on a cross 2,000 years ago, all your sins are future, okay? If God just dies for your sin, if, if Christ just dies for your sins up until the point of your conversion, then all you would have to do to go to hell is commit one sin post-conversion, okay? How many sins have I committed this morning? That's a problem. So we hold that when you're forgiven by God, you're forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. You're given a new status. You're not just washed clean. You're put in Christ, and you're given a new status. Well, that wasn't the view. And so what a lot of people would do is they would wait until their deathbed to be baptized. He retained the title, Pontifex Maximus, chief priest of the pagan state religion. So though Christianity is legal, he is still the high priest of paganism. Okay? That's a problem. That'd be a, like if he wanted to be a member here at Parkway, we'd, we'd, we'd need to have a conversation probably about him being Pontifex Maximus. He continued worshiping the sun, okay, like we just talked about, okay? Soul in Wictus, the uh, worship of the unconquered or the victorious sun that he, uh, he worshiped on uh, Sunday. He continued doing that the rest of his life. The Senate voted to make him a god after his death. You didn't know they could do that, did you? Right, you think that a Senate would just vote on political things? They wouldn't speak things into being? But that's what they do. They uh, vote to make him a god after his death. He killed his son and his wife. And listen to this. The guy that baptizes Constantine is the bad guy from the Council of Nicaea. He's the guy defending Arius's position. That's who will baptize Constantine. At the Council of Nicaea, we like to think that it's Athanasius versus Arius. Athanasius, the good guy, Arius, the bad guy. Neither of them were able to sit on the council at Nicaea because they were not bishops. The guy that had to represent Athanasius' position, Alexander of Alexandria, had to represent his, and then Arius' position was, rec- uh, was uh, defended by a guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia, and that will be the guy that will baptize Constantine. Additionally, one of Constantine's other sons, Constantius II, Constantine just names everything after himself, okay? Uh, Constantius II was also Arian, okay? So, can you be a Christian and be a pagan priest kill your wife and your son, be Aryan, and do all these other things. No, okay? So I think very clearly he was not a Christian. Here is probably the thing, though. So, so there's kind of two debates among historians with Constantine. Some think, yes, he's a legit Christian. Others think, no, he's just using Christianity politically. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. I don't think he's personally a Christian, but I don't think he's just using Christianity to unite his empire. He probably believes that the Christian God will favor him if he protects and is kind to Christians. So though he doesn't forsake his other religion and just cling to Christ, he probably thinks the Christian God gave me victory and as long as I make life easy for the Christians, things will probably go well in my empire. So he almost uses Christianity as like a type of superstition. That's probably what's going on with Constantine. Now, that the empire has gone from Christianity being illegal to being legal, is that a good thing or a bad thing? you have to say both, okay? You have to say that there are pros and there are cons. I talk to Christians sometimes and it's almost like they think persecution is good. 
They're like, it's good. It's good that we're going to have our religious freedoms taken away. It's good. It's good when the church is persecuted. I'm like, you know who loves persecuting the church? Satan. Don't hold that position. Yes, God will still cause his church to grow even though we're persecuted. The church is this unstoppable juggernaut and you cannot stop it. The gates of Hades won't prevail against it. But historically speaking, the church does better when it's not persecuted. You know why? Because we can evangelize and we can print Bibles and we can preach the gospel. Okay, so it's always better to not be persecuted. But with Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, you get both pros and cons. Let's look at a few. Some pros, okay? So think about this, by the way. If you've ever thought, man, I want, I want America to be a Christian nation and Christianity to be mandated, well, there would be some pros and cons there, okay? A lot of cons as well. But let's look at some pros and cons of what happens when you link church to state, especially here in the Roman Empire. First, pros, Christians, we're not being persecuted anymore. That's great, all right? That's great. It's always great to be able to worship and come to a night of worship and not have Romans break in and stab you with a spear. Women and slaves were treated better in Christianity than in paganism because God, the God of Christianity, the the triune God, does not care who you are. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor. He doesn't care if you're male or female. He doesn't care if you're black or white. He doesn't exalt all the things our culture exalts. For to him, you're just a sinful human that needs grace. That's it. That's great. He doesn't show partiality. And so the church is accepting in people that would have been rejected in Roman religion, specifically slaves and women. The gladiatorial games were outlawed, though they still happened, okay? And can I just be honest with you? I probably would have gone to one. It would have been wrong, but I would have worn those fake glasses and that mustache, and I would have snuck in the back and been like, yeah, get them get them, okay? But they were outlawed, at least, illegally. They are officially, they were illegal, the uh, gladiatorial games. Churches were granted tax-exempt status, which is awesome, so we can all drive around in our Ferraris. Brandings on the face were made illegal. That's always a good thing, okay? Why would someone be branded on the face? Well, sometimes you would do that as a punishment to a criminal. Sometimes you would do that as a form of like a tattoo, but a lot of times what would happen is that was a form that you would mark your slaves. In the same way that you would brand cattle, you would brand them, and you'd brand them in a place where they couldn't hide it, so they couldn't escape. You'd brand them on the face. That was made illegal. Missionary work happened much more easily, obviously, now that Christianity is legal. That is a pro. Sexual immorality and infanticide became illegal. You have to understand, under the Roman Empire, if you had a child that you didn't want, you would just leave your baby outside on the street to die from exposure or to be eaten by a wild animal. This is one of the reasons that uh, the, uh, the pagans are accusing the Christians of eating and cannibalizing babies. Christians would find these abandoned babies and adopt them. You know why? Because God has adopted us, so Christians should be about adoption. And so they'd see these babies and they'd adopt them, and the pagans couldn't understand that why would you just take on some kid that's not yours? That kid costs money. It costs energy. I bet that they're eating the babies. That's the only logical, the only logical uh, explanation for adoption, of course. Christians were free to flourish in the arts now that Christianity was legal. Theology, philosophy, history, art, etc. It allowed Christians to partake in that. Now, those are some pros, okay? Those are some pros. Let's look at some cons. What happens, so, so let me be clear. Had Christianity just been a legal religion and able to flourish on its own, that would be great. But when all of a sudden it's mandated by the state, where, you ha- where paganism is illegal, you don't have freedom of religion, you get some cons with that. One, it allowed the emperor too much control over the church. Why on earth would Constantine need to call any councils ever? Shouldn't the church call those? These are church business. This isn't state business. It allowed for many false conversions. If you're a pagan, and all of a sudden it's illegal to be a pagan, 
and you're like, okay, well, I guess I have to be a Christian now. You just go into the church and you receive baptism and not a whole lot else changes about your life. At some places, as Christianity starts to spread westward, what they would do is to baptize entire masses of people is they'd put water in the trees and have everyone stand under the trees and shake them and you're getting baptized. All the water's falling on you, okay? It's just mass false conversions, people getting into the church that aren't really regenerate. Pagan practices were brought into the church. This is not a good thing. Let me mention a few of them. Saint worship, or veneration, if you're Catholic, was substituted for hero worship. What happens when you grow up and you have polytheism? You're worshiping a bunch of gods. You're worshiping a god of the harvest and a god of war and a god of the sea or a hero like Hercules or whoever it is, and then all of a sudden, you have to become a Christian. Well, what you do is you just take those gods and you just make them saints. They can't be gods because there's only one God in Christianity. And so you just make them saints. And all of a sudden you have a saint of the harvest and a saint of ocean travels and a saint of health and healing or whatever it is, okay? A lot of people don't know this, that that what's going on in Roman Catholicism with the saints is directly related to the early church and pagans coming in and needing to worship something else other than just God. Needing to focus on, pray to, give veneration to, etc. Now, Catholics do not worship saints. We'll talk more about that when we get into the Middle Ages. That's not the view that they hold. Uh, But that is where it begins in the early church. Many Christians still practiced pagan magic especially when they were sick. We found in archaeological finds amulets with scripture verses on them, but also like a weird pagan thing to protect you from getting sick, right? It's kind of a first century COVID mask, if you will. So they've got that. I'm joking, by the way. I actually think there are times you should wear masks, but uh, they are practicing pagan magic to try to protect them from the illnesses, from uh, sicknesses. And so when you're a pagan, it's kind of like this. Do any of you get, feel a little uneasy if you walk under a ladder. You're not superstitious, to quote Michael Scott, you're just a little stitious. And so a black cat walks by and you think, I know that's not real, I'm a Christian, but you're later on thinking, oh, something bad's gonna happen today. You see, it's hard to shake. It's hard to shake. You grew up hearing don't walk under a ladder or break a mirror or spill the salt. And so when you do, you realize, I can't believe in that. That's evil, that's witchcraft. God controls things, certainly not black cats, right? But you still think, maybe maybe. And that's kind of what they're doing, right? So when they get sick. Some Christians even attended the gladiatorial games. Told you. Next. (laughs) Worship began to be influenced by imperial protocol. In the early church, it was very casual, kind of like how we are at Parkway. Why do we wear just regular clothes and why do we just talk to you normally? And why? Because that's just kind of what's going on in the book of Acts. That's what the early church is doing. What happens as uh, Christianity becomes more Romanized is it starts to be influenced by imperial protocol. I'll give you a few examples. Pastors began wearing luxurious robes and garments. In the early church, so anybody here grow up in a church where you had to dress up or wear a suit or dress nice to church? Yeah, pretty much all of us, right? When the Bible tells us how to dress at church, what does it always tell us to do? The opposite of that. Don't let your adornment be the braiding of hair and the wearing of expensive clothes and a jewelry, all the things that we do. We just ignore that. We ignore those passages. And so the Bible wants you to come as you are. You don't put your best foot forward for God. That's not the gospel. It's that he's put his best foot forward for you. You want a place where people that are poor can come in and feel welcome. So in the early church, they're just wearing their regular clothes. But now, that they're this official state religion, you start getting the robes and the fancy shiny jewels and all the stuff that you see going on eventually in, uh, in churches where pastors will wear luxurious robes and uh, vestments. 
Incense began to be used in worship because you would do that at imperial functions. At an official imperial event, you would light incense, and so they started doing that within churches. That's where you get incense in churches. Pastors were now going to start to be called priests, and communion tables were called an altar in imitation of their pagan counterparts. You see, we are all priests. The priesthood of believer, the New Testament would teach, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, and you're a priest. What happens, though, as uh, the church becomes more like Rome, is that you start calling pastors a priest. You start giving them this status above the lay people. You see, we don't hold that at Parkway. Me and you, we're equally close to God. If anything, you're closer to God than me, because I got a lot of problems going on, okay? This is my vocation. It's a calling, but I don't have a special, I don't have special Jesus powers that you don't have. What they start doing, though, is they start calling pastors priests, exalting them over the lay people, and the communion table starts becoming an altar, because that's what it was called in paganism. The, the Roman Catholic Church will retain that idea of altar because they believe when you're partaking of communion, you are offering Christ as a sacrifice again, that you are, that he, he there's no longer bread and wine. It is now body and blood, and it is, quote, a bloodless sacrifice that Christ is, in a sense, being sacrificed for your sins, so they call it an altar. We don't call this an altar here because we're Protestant. I always thought thought it was funny when I saw, like, a Baptist do an altar call. I'm like, do not call it an altar call. This is not an altar, okay? We're not offering any sacrifices. Christ died once for our sins. Next, some Christians, this is a bad thing. Some Christians persecuted pagans and Jews by destroying their temples and even using violence against them. That's not good. We beat people by ideas, not by violence. Since the bishopric was a position of social esteem, some people sold church offices and took bribes. This is what is called simony. Some people call it simony. Simony. It's named after Simon the Magician. In the book of Acts, the apostles are praying for people and the Holy Spirit is falling upon them and they're getting converted. And there's this guy, Simon, who's the magician, right? Like, ah. He's the magician, and what he wants to do is he wants to try to buy this ability to give people the spirit and such for money, and the disciples are like, you've totally missed it. You have no part in our ministry, and so this practice of selling church offices is called simony after Simon the magician in the book of Acts. What happens, and this is the con, is that the narrow road of Christianity becomes wide. What was difficult what took sacrifice, what made sure that you, you know, in the early church, you had to make sure that you knew the faith. Do you know this about Christ? Do you believe he died for you? Will you obey him, etc.? That kind of goes out the door and the narrow road becomes wide. Well, other things going on at this time in church history. Let's step outside of just talking about Constantine for a second. There is a guy in 361. His name is Julian. He's called Julian the Apostate. Let me tell you about Julian. So what you have after Constantine is you have Christian, Christian, Christian. You have several Christian leaders. But then there's this guy named Julian who grew up Christian, but he was kind of the mad emo kid that had a bad dad. And he's like, forget Christianity. I'm going to get us back to paganism. So he tries to convert the empire back to paganism. That's why he's called Julian the Apostate. Now, what's interesting is he still wants to keep the morality of Christianity. He still wants to help the poor. He still wants to help the downtrodden. You didn't have that in pagan religion. The pagan gods don't care about the weak. The pagan gods care about the winners. So he's almost blending Christianity with paganism. And he does something that's ingenious, though, to try to stop the spread of Christianity. He doesn't allow Christians to teach classical authors. He realizes that that, that part of what makes Christianity great, by the way, is that we redeem Plato we redeem Plotinus, we redeem Aristotle, we take these figures that are great thinkers and we use them for the purposes of Christ. What Julian knows is that if we can stop that, if we can not allow Christians to teach pagan authors, 
they're not gonna be smart. They're not gonna be good rhetorically. They're not gonna be able to make a defense and it will hurt the faith. That's probably the smartest thing that he does. Thankfully, after Julian, most uh, emperors will be, uh, be at least favorable to, uh, to Christianity. He was killed in a battle by being hit with a spear and supposedly, according to legend, these are Julian the Apostate's last words. You have won, Galilean. All right? See, church history's not boring. You're boring. Church history's fun. Okay. St. Patrick. Let's talk about St. Patrick. Was actually British. <gasps> not Irish. Don't tell your friends. Don't tell the whole nation of Ireland or Northern Ireland. St. Patrick was British, not Irish. He was captured by Irish pirates when he was 16, and he stayed in Ireland for six years. Upon returning to Britain, he felt called to become a missionary to the Irish people. From 432 to 461, he ministered there and was opposed by the Druid religion, okay? So this guy gets captured as a teenager by the Irish, finally gets free, and he feels that calling on his heart, I need to bring Christianity to Ireland. Because at this point, Ireland is Celtic, it's pagan, right? They're part of the Druid religion. What is that, where they're like painting their face blue, and there's probably like centaurs involved or something. They're part of that Druid religion. And so he thinks, no, I need to bring them Christ. And so he becomes this kind of patron missionary to Ireland. And today, to honor St. Patrick, everyone drinks green beer and gets drunk and throws up in the street, right? To honor St. Patrick, who brings the gospel to Ireland. Well, I've put a picture here of what is called a Celtic cross. Let me tell you why this is significant. You've probably seen this. You see this especially in places like Ireland. You've probably seen it at uh, Roman Catholic events, etc. What the Celts would do is one of the things that they would worship is they would worship the sun. So because Christianity is triumphing over this Celtic religion, what they did is this circle here in the middle of the cross no longer represents the sun. It represents the eternality and the glory of God. It is a symbol of Christianity's triumph over paganism. If you've ever seen a cross like that, that is where that comes from. Another interesting thing at this time in church history, listen to this, Baptists. The primary way that baptism was done until the ninth century was by full immersion. Pouring on the head was also common, but listen to this, dabbing on the head or sprinkling. Most denominations do baptism by sprinkling, whether it's Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever. Sprinkling was only used for people who were really sick. It was not a common feature in the early church. In Italy, baptism was done by immersion until the 13th century, and the Greek Orthodox Church, because they speak Greek and they know what baptizo means, has always done baptism by immersion, even of infants. If you get baptized as an infant in the Greek Orthodox Church, they're just dunking that baby left and right, okay? But at least they're dunking the baby. So for my friends that are of other denominations and they are brothers in Christ and baptism is not a major doctrine, it's a minor doctrine, they'll say, Zach, the early church has always done infant baptism. And I say, well, first of all, that's not true. Not only is it not in the New Testament, it's not until the third century that infants are baptized. The first person on record to baptize infants is Irenaeus in the third century. So I don't know, five generations have gone by before they ever do infant baptism. Hippolytus, Tertullian, and Justin Martyr all said that baptism was reserved for believers. So not only is that claim not true, but what they'll say is, Zach, Infant baptism is early, and I'll say it's true, I'll give you that it's early, and it was done by sprinkling. Nope, it was not done by sprinkling. It was done by immersion or maybe pouring, but sprinkling doesn't come about till really after half of church history is over. Immersion is a much earlier form of baptism than is sprinkling. Not only is that not the way it's done in the New Testament, it's not the way it's done for the first thousand years in church history. Baptistries were often in one of three shapes. A womb to symbolize new birth, that's fun. A coffin, like we have at Parkway, huh? 
Look at us standing in line with the church, standing in line with church history. Why do we have a coffin? To symbolize death and resurrection. You die to your old life and you're raised in Christ. Or an octagon, right, to duke it out with Satan. Not that kind of octagon, okay? An octagon to symbolize the eighth day of creation, which is the new age inaugurated in Christ. God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. The eighth day is the new age in Christ. And so certain baptistries were in the shape of an octagon. Here's an actual uh, ancient baptistry in uh, Ephesus. And notice that you go down into it. It is also done by immersion. You would walk down on the side and then you would be baptized, okay? Church government at this time moved away from a plurality of elders to an emphasis on bishops, Okay, I'll explain that in just a second. There was a primacy also put on the Bishop of Rome. The first certain date for a single bishop in Rome is Urban I, circa 220 to 230. Let me explain. Parkway is ultimately led by Christ. He leads his church. But as far as merely human authority, the the, the bucket uh, Parkway stops with the elders. We stand under Christ. We stand under the scripture. But there's not a church body that is beyond Parkway that tells us what to do. We don't have to check if we're doing a new sermon series with a diocese. We don't have to check with a bishop or whatever. We are led by a group of men known as elders. In some denominations, you have, instead of that, you have what is called a bishop, okay? A bishop is somebody who has authority over multiple congregations. So a bishop would be above elders. We don't have that because we actually don't think that that's a distinct office in the New Testament. When the Bible uses the terms pastor, when it uses the terms bishop, episkopos, when it uses the term elder, presbyteros, those are all the same office. Don't think that a difference in word means a different in office. Those are all the same thing. Though we're fine, if you want to call us bishops, we're fine. Call Jeff the Bishop of McKinney. That'd be awesome. Put that on your Twitter bio. <clears throat> but they're the same thing. The early church starts to see a distinction in these. So a few reasons why they moved to having a bishop or bishops instead of just elders. One, the Greek term overseer and the Greek term for elder are different words, therefore they assume that they are different offices. It was easier to oversee the churches administratively with one bishop. In wartime, the president gets certain powers that he doesn't have outside of wartime. Why? Because he needs to make decisions quickly, and so it moves from a plurality to a singularity, and the early church is doing the same thing. It provided someone who could answer disputes between lower churches. So what happens if one church is fighting with another church and the pastors don't agree? Who gets to solve it? Well, having a bishop gives you a pretty convenient person to answer that question. Church A is right, church B is wrong. And primarily, it was used to protect orthodoxy from false teaching, okay? So if, if a false teacher came up to me By the way, there's this new cult in McKinney that started. I don't know if you know about this or not, but Jared met with these cult people and uh, now they have warrants out for the rest. Anyway, but that wasn't because of Jared. They've just been doing some real shady stuff. When Jared met with them, Jared is appealing to the Bible. Jared is saying, I make a better biblical case than you do in your weird cult beliefs. That's how you deal with heresy. You show that your interpretation of the Bible is better than theirs. Well, the way that the early church is dealing with heresy is by taking a different route. What they're gonna do, if there's a Christian arguing with a heretic, they're both gonna be using the Bible, right? Zach, why can't we just read the Bible? Because heretics read the Bible too. So they're both gonna be appealing to the Bible, so how do you know who's right? Well, what the, what the Orthodox would do, what the Catholics would do, what they would do is they would say, wait a second, I'm a bishop. I was ordained by this guy who was ordained by the Apostle John. I stand in this line of the gospel. Not only that, I'm appealing to tradition. You're coming up with some new weird interpretation. I'm showing you the tradition that the church has always taught, the quote, once for all delivered to the saints gospel. And so they use this idea of a bishop as a way to fight false teachers and to fight heresy, okay? Shifting gears, let's talk about monks 
and monasteries. You ever wonder where those come from? Those guys with their little weird haircuts? By the way, why do they have that haircut where they do the little thing that's bald on the top and shaved here, but they have this ring of hair? It's because it is a crown of thorns that eventually becomes a crown of glory. That's why a crown of glory. That's why they cut their hair that way. It's a way to honor Christ. Where do monks come from? Let's talk a little bit about monks. With the growing worldliness and opulence of the church, many sought a way of life that was more like Jesus, homeless, poor, and a servant, thus giving birth to monasticism. The word monk comes from the word monikos or manas, meaning solitary or alone. Now, you have monks before the time of Constantine. There's always been this desire for some people to say, I want to get away from everything, get away from worldliness, get away from what's secular, circle the wagons, and get out of here. Okay? That's always been there. With Constantine, though, you get a much bigger movement to do that because people see that the church looks corrupt, the church looks somewhat pagan, and so they desire to get out of there. So you get this huge flourishing of uh, monasticism. The uh, original guys that did this were called desert fathers because they were mainly singular. They didn't live in groups with other people. They were singular, and they would go out into the desert, primarily in Egypt, to get away from it all, and they are called desert fathers. They practiced extreme asceticism, such as eating only dates, yuck, fasting, wearing itchy sackcloth, living in caves, and sleeping only on a mat. And there's a debate between early church leaders of who is the earliest and the, the, the forerunner of the Desert Fathers. One of these is named Paul of Thebes, and the other is St. Anthony. It is Athanasius that will make St. Anthony's name famous. Now, we have an image here that I want you to see. This is a very famous image. This is called the Torment of St. Anthony, Okay. That's St. Anthony. That's him out in the desert just trying to worship God. And look at all these demons attacking him. Notice that the demons are attacking from the outside. Anthony will even talk about being battered and beat up and bruised with his struggles with the demons. I especially like the one on the left that kind of looks like a fish. Uh, The the picture on the right is the actual painting. I've included that image on the left so that you can actually see uh, some of the details uh, a little bit more clearly. But this is known as the torment of St. Anthony. The reason this is famous is because Anthony is known for going out in the desert and having to wrestle with all the sin, with all the lust, with all these things, but they're seen as external. We'll talk about how that's not your main threat, by the way. Your main problem as a Christian is internal. You're your own worst enemy. You have hurt yourself way more than the devil has hurt you, okay? And so, uh, but this is the torment of St. Anthony. It is the earliest painting by Michelangelo. You know who Michelangelo is. He's that ninja turtle with the nunchucks and the orange mask. Well, when he's not fighting Shredder, he's making incredible art, right? Like the Sistine Chapel. This is the earliest painting by Michelangelo and it's one of four surviving panel paintings by Michelangelo. Now, where is this located? You might think, Zach, this must be in the Vatican. This must be at the Louvre or the British Museum. This painting is located right here in Fort Worth, Texas at the Kimball Arts Museum. I've seen it. You can get it. If you're ever thinking about getting me a Christmas gift, if you could steal this painting and give it to me, I would love that. It's worth millions and millions of dollars, okay? But this is the torment of St. Anthony. Now, some of these monks are really, really, really weird, okay? You'll, You'll notice that they don't actually seem very Christian the more you study their life. They're not just trusting Christ. They are just trying to earn salvation by doing extreme acts of moral effort. They're very Pelagian, if you want to say it that way. One monk, Macarius, was so remorseful for having killed a mosquito that he lived for six months in a swamp, allowing mosquitoes to bite him. Okay? You know how swollen that guy had to be all the time? Because you can't slap one and be like, oh, we got to start over. Six months again. Another monk, Simon the Stylite, lived for several months buried up to his neck. People would have to bring him food. And he would just go to the restroom and all the other stuff just buried up to his neck. He then spent, and this is what he's most known for, a stylite, by the way, is uh, like a tower, a stylus. 
After that, he lived for over 30 years on the top of a 60-foot pole. He would sleep up there. He would pray up there. He would preach to people up there for 30 years just on top of this big pillar. Awful. Another monk, a moon, never undressed or bathed after becoming a monk, okay? So, you don't want to partake in worldly pleasures like soap. You just have to, uh, you just have to suffer for Christ. Now, what's new about monasticism at this time is that monks decided to try living together communally. Here's what the monks realized. You can't do Christianity by yourself, okay? The Bible commands us to confess sins one to another, to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to take communion together, to gather, to not give up gathering together. You can't do Christianity by yourself. So all these monks are out there, I want to live for Jesus, and I can't fulfill any of his commands because there's just a bunch of desert. There's a big tower, maybe I'll sleep on that for 30 years. That's not the goal. Okay? And so what they do is they start realizing we need to live together in these monastic communities so that we actually have other people that we can love. This is called cenobitic monasticism, where you live with other people. The first monastery is founded seven years after the Edict of Toleration and five years before the Council of Nicaea in 320 by a guy named Pacomius. He's the first one that we have on record of creating a monastery. A few things about monks and monasteries. One, monks mainly thought that temptation came from being around a wealthy Christian society instead of temptation being within them. This is very much like the thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who thought that you were basically good and it was society and progress and the enlightenment that corrupted you instead of realizing that you're the problem. A lot of these monks are kind of doing the same thing. If I can just get away from the world, then I can be holy, only to find out that your sins are wherever you are, right? Like whether you're around people or not around people, lust or pride or selfishness or whatever, it doesn't go away. They were all celibate and many of them even castrated themselves, only to find that they still lusted, by the way. In 1 Corinthians, to be fair, Paul does say that it's better for the purposes of ministry to be single. We don't think of that today. We think, I would never hire a pastor who's single. Paul says it's better to be single if you're a pastor. Not better like God loves you more, but better in the sense of practically it's easier when you don't also have to care for a family. Due to Gnostic and Neoplatonic influences, they thought that the body and physical things were bad. The church, by the way, has never shaken that. Even to this day, you probably feel guilty when you're having fun, even if it's not sinful. We have a tendency to think that what's physical or what's worldly or what's fun or enjoyable must be bad. The church has never shaken the ghost of Gnosticism. They didn't like the syncretism syncretism being brought into the church from half-converted pagans, so they left. The caves of the desert and food produced by the Nile made withdrawing from society possible. Monks took a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. You'll see that several times in church history. Those will be kind of this threefold vow. Poverty, you won't own stuff. It'll be owned communally by the group. You might have a bed and your books, and that's it. Chastity, couldn't get married, and then obedience. You would obey whoever is over that monastery and then eventually the pope. Monks were excellent farmers, cattle breeders, and beer brewers, okay? There are actually a lot of uh, beers today produced by monks, like Chimay and these kind of things are produced by monks. Monasteries often provided a place of sanctuary. You've seen the Hunchback of uh, Notre Dame, right? Provide a place of sanctuary for those in need and doubled as hospitals. The head over several monasteries is called an abbot, which means father or an archimandrite, Friars, what is a friar? You see, a monk is technically somebody who stays in the monastery. A friar is somebody who's like a monk, but he's out amongst the common people. They realized not only could they not just fulfill Christ's commands by themselves, they weren't helping disciple anybody. They weren't reaching anybody. So they realized we needed to be out in society. Who is Robin Hood's friend? Friar Tuck, he's out amongst the people, right? 
He's out amongst the people, and uh, he's a friar. Martin Luther is technically not just a monk, he's a friar because he's out amongst the people. You then get what will become a very famous rule for monks, what is called the Rule of St. Benedict. It's a list of 73 instructions to regulate the life of monks and 12 steps of humility to help them reach heaven. It's named after Benedict of Nursia, and if you've ever heard of the word Benedictine, Benedictine is a Catholic religious order that is named after St. Benedict. That's where that is. Now, I need to tell you about an interesting figure who will become two figures I think that are the most central for promoting monasticism, okay? Monasticism is just this idea of monks. One is... Athanasius is the life of St. Anthony, where he's going to talk about uh, St. Anthony out living in the desert. The other one is, from a guy, is about a guy named Martin of Tours. Okay? It's called the life of St. Martin. Let me tell you about this. Martin's parents were not Christians, and they didn't want him doing anything with Christianity, so they enrolled him into the military. Okay? As the story goes, he was one day entering a town in France, and he saw a beggar shivering in the cold, and the beggar asked him for alms. Please, do you have any money to spare? And Martin, wanting to be a Christian, even though his parents didn't want him to be, he didn't have any money, so he took his heavy military cape and he pulled out his sword and he cut it in half and he gave it to the poor beggar. Supposedly, that night, Jesus came to him in a dream wearing half of a soldier's cape and said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. And that story becomes foundational for who St. Martin will be. If you've ever heard of the word chapel, Where's the word chapel come from? It comes from capella, which means cape. And it's a reference to the fact that many small churches claimed to have a piece of St. Martin's cape. He was discipled by Hilary of Potier, okay? St. Martin, we've got a picture here. There's a famous uh, image here, kind of a, uh, this obviously comes later, but there's a famous picture of him cutting his cape in half to give half of it here to this beggar, St. Martin, okay? Martin of Tours, and Tours will become an extremely important city in France, okay? It's at the Battle of Tours, that uh, Charles Martel, the hammer, is gonna actually stop the Muslim invasion, which would have turned all of Europe Muslim had he not win, uh, won that battle. But uh, here is old Martin of Tours. Now, when Martin was supposed to be announced as a bishop, many opposed him because he didn't accept all the worldly wealth of other bishops. He was unkempt. He was kind of gross looking. He was the kind of guy that had no gel in his hair. And so they're like, this guy can't be a bishop. Look at him. And then someone stepped up and read from Psalm 8-2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And that was taken as a direct message from heaven that Martin should become the bishop. And he became the ideal bishop in that he opposed the wealth and pomp experienced in much of the church, okay? That's church history at this point. The conversion of Rome, monasticism, Christianity becoming a legal religion, et cetera. Let's do a little bit of theology so we can learn from this lesson. First question, Does the Bible promote monasticism and asceticism? Let me just read you a few verses and you tell me. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Uh Uh-oh. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul is saying do not get away from lost people. Let me say it this way. You don't stay close. You don't stay away from sin by staying away from sinners. You stay away from sin by staying close to Jesus. Amen? The church, and we'll see this when we talk about fundamentalism in the church. Some of you might even have this inclination. There's worldliness out there. There's sinners out there. Let's get away. Let's only be around Christians and only read Christian books and only Christian stuff. Don't do that, okay? It always goes bad when you do that. We are called to engage. We're called to be around sinners. I want you to be around lost people who have deplorable sins because Paul says don't withdraw from them. Who I don't want you to be around are those that are Christians that are living in sexual immorality. That's what Paul says. 
John 17, 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Colossians 2, 21 through 23, these are what the heretics say. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, meaning don't enjoy God's good gifts, don't drink alcohol, don't have fun, don't watch shows, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed Listen to this, this is really important. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is saying that again, you don't stay away from sin by getting rid of God's good gifts that are not sinful. In fact, that doesn't help with your lust at all. That's what the false teachers do. The false teachers often try to restrict God's gifts more so than they try to get you to partake in things that are explicitly sinful. 1 Timothy 4, 4, 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What, What are the doctrine of demons? Who forbid marriage, that's the enjoyment of sexuality with your spouse, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, okay? Christians are not to partake in anything sinful, but things that are not sinful are God's gift to you so that you know that he loves you. And a lot of times Christians have said, I wanna stay away from sin stuff, so I'll also just stay away from good gifts. I don't wanna get drunk, so I'll stay away from alcohol. I don't wanna commit sexual morality, so I just will just abstain from marriage entirely. And the Bible will condemn that. Abuse does not negate proper use, okay? Three lessons that we can learn from this time in church history, and then we'll have some questions. Number one, to what degree should the church and state be united? To what degree should the church and state be united? And you'll have both views throughout church history. It will be Protestants later on who push for religious toleration to say, just allow people to do what they want and the gospel will conquer. The state doesn't need to get involved. But you also have, uh, throughout most of church history, the linking of church and state. There's a weird debate right now going on in evangelicalism which goes something like this. It's wrong for Christians to wanna live in a Christian nation. The reason that statement is super stupid is because that happens with Constantine, the Merovingians, the Carolingians, Calvin's Geneva, Luther's Wittenberg, Zwingli's Zurich, the Puritans, the Church of England, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Throughout church history, there is this, you want, a, you want the, the nation to be strongly influenced by Christianity. That's what you want, so that people can flourish and not be persecuted for their faith. Does that mean that the state should force Christianity? No, it does not. No, it does not. Second thing, to what degree should the church adopt cultural practices to reach the lost? You ever thought about that? Why do we dress the way we do? Why do we have the music we have, et cetera? Part of that is just the culture we're in, but it's also an attempt to reach the lost. We don't wanna create extra barriers for somebody coming in here. The reason I don't wear a robe when I preach is because I'm not a Jedi Knight, okay? That's not what's most helpful for people. And so, but, but to what degree do you adopt these cultural practices? If you're ministering in a Muslim context, do you call God Allah? That's just the Arabic word for God, by the way. If you don't call him that, what do you call him? So you have to wrestle through these kind of issues. And then the third one, withdrawing from society is never the answer. If you think society is just going down the tubes, which it is, the solution is not to withdraw, it's to be further a gospel influence in there. Christians need to be involved in politics, in universities, in education, in uh, business, in whatever. We need to be so all over the place that you cannot stomp us out and our ideas start pervading society. That's what we need to do. So with that in mind, let me pray. And Jared Lawson, the blonde devil, will come up here and he will uh, answer some questions for us. 
Father, we love you. We thank you for sending Christ. We thank you for sending the Spirit. We confess that there is only one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. We thank you that you've preserved your church. We pray that you'd give us wisdom as we are in a society that is not exactly like Rome, or Christianity is not uh, coerced, but also not exactly like the early church where it's persecuted. We're in this weird in-between stage, probably moving towards the latter. So would you protect us? Would you guide us? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.